This episode is sponsored by Lens Protocol. Lens lets you own your own social media presence, easily monetize your content, and carry your social graph with you wherever you go. That means you, the creator, can focus on creating without ever having to worry about losing access to your account or having to build a new following again. Lens also lets you engage more closely with your fans, directly monetize your work, and if you're a dev, easily spin up a new app with Lens's full suite of developer tools. Lens Protocol is the social layer of Web3. Join the waitlist at waitlist.lens.xyz for the last social media handle you'll ever need. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen. And today we have the honor of hearing from Yancy Strickler, co-founder of MetaLabel and Kickstarter. We start out by envisioning what a post-capitalistic world might look like and discussing how practical this model is in the world as we know it today. A lot of this part of the conversation stems from an article he wrote back in 2019 called Post-Capitalism for Realists, as well as his book, This Could Be Our Future. We more or less agreed that while it sounds really nice and idyllic to live in a world where we can all pursue our passions and fully live out our values without worrying about how we're going to make money from everything we do, the reality is that we all need money to survive and things are expensive and therefore it is an unavoidable part of life, at least in the US and the Western world, to at least partially consider how your passions or objectives can be monetized and to dispense with activities that don't monetize or at least spend a much smaller percentage of your time on not profit generating activities. From there, we dive deeper into a conversation around the creator economy, a term that Yancey actually isn't too fond of, and he explains why in this episode. He prefers to use a framing more analogous to release clubs or labels when thinking about creator collaboration and co-creation. Even though the creator economy is probably one of our most talked about topics on this season of Rehash, I really appreciate that each of our guests has brought a different perspective to the table. The lens through which Yancey views the creator economy is certainly a unique one, and I'd love to hear what you think after listening to this episode. Come find us on Twitter or Discord or write us at rehashweb3 at gmail.com and let us know what you think from your view the future of the creator economy will look like. And don't forget to rate and review this episode on Apple Podcasts as well and share it with any friends or family members who you think would enjoy listening to this. It's hard to believe, but this season is coming to a close. This is one of our last episodes of season five, which means it's time to start thinking about which guests you want to nominate for season six of the podcast. And make sure you have an NFT in your wallet so that you're eligible to participate in our next round of nominations and voting. And if you're interested in sponsoring season six of Rehash, please go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor for more information or shoot us a message at rehashweb3 at gmail.com if you have any questions or would like to chat more. Yancey was nominated by Niche and voted onto the podcast by Meg Lister, Aaron Soskin, Fifth World Zach, Niche, and me, Diana Chen. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Yancey. Hey, Yancey. Welcome to Rehash. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have been, like I mentioned to you before we started recording, diving through all of your stuff over the last 24 hours or so, and you have so many gems on the internet. You've written so much. You've obviously are so well read and have done so much thinking. And I think the stuff that you've written too is like really relatable to anybody, not just anyone listening to this podcast who might be interested in Web3 or interested in some of the things we talk about, but really applicable and relatable topics to anyone that exists on the internet, which is just about anyone nowadays, right? Oh, that's very generous of you. I appreciate that. It's well-deserved. The first thing I want to talk about, and I know we're going to spend the bulk of this episode talking about the creator economy. I think that's a big topic that people are interested in nowadays. But I actually want to start from one of the articles that you wrote a while ago called Post-Capitalism for Realists, where the thing that really struck me about that was when you talk about the difference between the word value versus the word values. And so 
we talk about this a lot at Rehash because going back to our origin, we really launched Rehash with nothing more than a few values that we hold very dear to our hearts and still uphold very much so. The community understands that the community has been voting guests onto the podcast that align with those values. So that's super important to us. But when we say the word value in Western society, at least, most of the time where our head goes to is monetary or financial value. So, you know, having a set of values for your organization is great, but if you can't figure out a way to monetize your organization, then it's almost like, what's the point? Or it's almost like, I'm going to stop listening here because you're not going to make it. So this isn't really going to be relevant for much longer. So my question for you is this article that you wrote was almost four years ago. It was in, in late 2019. Do you think that we have made any progress since you wrote that article four years ago in moving beyond a capitalistic world and maybe shifting away from viewing value just in monetary terms and maybe allocating more meaning to that term? Well, I appreciate the deep cut of (laughs) that piece, which yeah, is a while ago. And, you know, that article came up after I was at a dinner with the CEO of an outdoors company, and I was asking if they would be willing to spend money to limit climate change, because that was ultimately in their best interest, and they make products for people to enjoy the outdoors. And so what if the conditions of the planet make that less tenable? And this person was unable to justify that. It just didn't make any sense according to their the value system that ran their business. And I wrote a book called This Could Be Our Future that's about how society is dominated by a financial notion of value and value is something that is quantified and values generally are not quantified right it doesn't exactly make sense to say here is my truth score here's my moral score you know they're just like different concepts but what tends to happen is that as values like the more humanities word gets shifted into more of a metric it becomes more scalably applicable to a wider swath of people. It goes from being your personal belief system to a belief system that you can hold a group of people accountable to. You know, what first interested me in blockchain was this notion of being able to distribute goods or access according to a metric, any kind of metric, and that metric could be financial or non-financial. And there have been interesting experiments along these lines. A a non-blockchain-related one that I write about in the book is Adele did a concert tour in 2014 where, because she was the biggest artist in the world, the second her tickets would go on sale, they would go on secondary markets and be sold for thousands of dollars more. So she did a concert tour where they created a loyalty algorithm based on how long someone had listened to her on Spotify or when they first watched her on YouTube and used that to distribute tickets to the most loyal fans, putting no restrictions on how they could be resold. But the idea is instead of optimizing for who can pay the most, let's optimize for who is the most loyal. And that was a really successful experiment. It had some hiccups in execution, but it ended up 4% of those tickets were resold versus 40% in a normal context. So that, that to me showed that there's something there, but has there been progress is an interesting question. I was having dinner with someone the other day who's French and had been in the US for a little while. And their observation was that it felt to them like no longer in the US was capitalism, the most important and dominant mentality, but instead the culture war was. And that culture wars had become even bigger than capitalism in a sense of how they drove behavior and how people sorted themselves. And certainly like recent Supreme Court rulings where businesses are allowed to discriminate is going to push culture war values above business and capitalist values. So I think that's something, I don't know if her statement is exactly true, but that struck me as a very interesting observation. So I would say that I think we're in a period of just a lot of confusion And that confusion is definitely a rise of a different value set. You know, there's a doomer mindset. There's a contagion of different ideologies that happens through social media that post-COVID especially, I think, has reshaped the world, unshaped itself. Something else comes in waves. So, yeah, I feel like that the dominance of financial values as the one metric, I do feel like that is more diminished. I feel like its monopoly has weakened. There is more competition for what is the most valuable value. 
What I can't say is whether that's progress or not. It's messy. It's happening. I think that would be my verdict. I guess we should maybe back up and talk about, we're talking about progress, progress towards what? So could you clarify a little bit more? What is that end state that we're speaking of when we speak of making progress towards that? So this post-capitalistic world, which you write about in this article, and I encourage everybody to go read it. But I think as I'm reading this and just existing in this space, I think so many times I feel like our discourse sometimes sounds so great in theory, but in practice, I'm not sure how realistic they are. I'm not sure how in touch they are with the world outside of this little Web3 bubble that most of us exist in. So tell us your vision for this post-capitalistic world what that looks like. Well, yeah, I mean, what I was imagining in the book and sort of in that conversation is number one, that there's a default assumption that we all make that the correct decision in any situation is whichever option makes us the most money. And that this is this sort of invisible to visible litmus test that we, it's just like a part of our brains if you grow up in certain societies in certain contexts. And my book cites many different examples of how that becomes problematic. And so I do think that is something that has changed. I think that the weekly checks post-COVID, the printing of money that happened, like that created a different set of decisions for many people. It removed the scarcity mentality that drove certain behaviors. And I would say that it has happened that for many people, there became a greater freedom to not simply make what the most financially advantageous decision was, but there were a lot of other factors that became possible. I look at that book and those pieces now as like wonderfully naive, maybe. I don't judge myself exactly, but like they feel young. They feel like a younger person's dreams because I think what I see is that that is happening. And the book already supposes this and a philosophy the book introduces called Bentoism takes this as a core idea that we all have different value systems and that our notions of truth, our notions of right and wrong, of the outcomes we wish are very different. And so I think we're moving into a society where that is more and more accepted and where we are more segmenting ourselves into micro communities according to these very specific values that we are saying matter the most to us how enjoyable a society that is to live in or how that plays out, I think is we're still in the midst of, it's still the early days of. And so I think maybe an earlier version of me would say, yes, that's progress because we're moving away from something that's problematic, but moving away from something that's problematic doesn't mean you're moving beyond problems. It maybe just means you're changing them. And so I see all these things as there's big waves of history moving around us and we're just these tiny bugs bobbing on the top of the surface trying to figure out where we are but really struggling to get much perspective but yeah i mean i, I think that there's been a a real resettlement and a real shift that continues to happen that hasn't yet played out fully but that has definitely opened up different ways that groups of people make decisions different ways for our society to run and even things like culture war values becoming more important than a business reputation or their quarterly earnings that seemed so immovable just four years ago. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do think that's progress, even the acceptance of different ways of thinking that aren't just focused on monetary value. I've noticed this personally in my life as well. Like back in 2017, I left my career as an attorney to go travel and became a travel blogger. At that time, I think to most people, it seems like a pretty crazy move and maybe not the smartest or most responsible decision. And I think in today's world, which is only six years later, it seems a lot more acceptable to do something like that than it felt back in 2017. So I think that is the first step is that society has to accept these different ways of thinking in order for us to then move into being able to actually live this way and to live in a way where we can pursue our values and our passions in a realistic way while still putting food on the table. Everything is so much more expensive nowadays, but people in society is also becoming more open-minded. So it's kind of like, how do these two things marry together is, I think, an interesting question. And I'm also curious if, like you were mentioning, 
some mindset shifts that people have had over time where back in the day, I think people had this really strong scarcity mindset and competition was uh, a big thing. If I mean, as a former founder in the traditional startup world, I'm sure back then, especially you probably felt competition pretty strong, I would assume. And nowadays, especially in the Web3 space, we're all about positive sum, we can all work together, we can all collaborate together, and we can all succeed. And it doesn't have to be just because I'm a creator, just because you're a creator, that we have to compete against each other for the subscribers and for the viewers and all of that. So the question I'm getting to there is, what are some of the key mindset shifts other than the scarcity mindset that you've seen society, Western society at least, go through in the last decade or so? And how does that translate into how people can make money, how people can make a living, how people can sustain themselves? Will it be possible one day, maybe with our kids or grandkids, where the starving artist trope no longer exists or maybe isn't felt as strongly? as it was when we were growing up. So much to dig into there. Sorry, that was just the ramble. So, no, no, yeah, <laughs> Very no, stream of no, consciousness. You're just, you're just speaking your truth. You're just speaking your truth. <laughs> I want to honor it. So, I mean, just to start with the bad news, you know, I think the WAGME era was a specific period of time. And what now gets talked a lot about is just Web2 before it was just the internet. In the early days of those things, everyone was building on opening APIs that plugged into each other. There was a very strong, just like pro-social mentality of we're just building new systems, like we're creating a new society online. And then those projects raised a lot of money. There became a lot more at stake. And increasingly, they put up walls between them. And I think in the crypto space, I think that similar kind of thing is happening. And I think that in some areas, there's like more projects than there are customers. And so you get a lot of is quite competitive to work with someone. So I think that those open, we can do anything moments, they tend to be moments versus things that get held onto for a long time. So I, I'm going to look at it just from my specific experience to think about the last decade or so online. And, and that's thinking as a creative person. And I think that the creator economy mindset to me is a very specific notion of being a creative person. And it's a notion that to me is shaped by like whatever the logic is of like Patreon series G fundraising round, which is like people go online to be seen and to monetize themselves. And so we must optimize all outcomes for helping people be seen and monetize themselves. If I think of like the creative person's hierarchy of needs, you know, there's the Maslow's hierarchy, mm -hmm. which says like there's security and then you go to love and eventually you get to self-actualization. And we take that to mean the most important thing is to get paid. And so I think the creator economy mindset applies that same logic to creative people. And I think that's wrong. I think that has warped the notion of what it is to be a creative person. Now we think as having a conversation with a friend yesterday, it's like, well, the first thing a creative person needs is an audience. And I'm like, Hell no. First thing a person needs is a will to make work that they can't turn off. They need a something that they must say. They need the courage and the stubbornness to keep saying it for themselves. The most important thing is to do it for yourself, actually. And if you look at any experience of any creative people throughout history, approval of others is like pretty far down the line and clearly optional. Herman Melville is writing Moby Dick for how long? If you look at Van Gogh, Van Gogh painted like 10,000 paintings in 10 years. And I think that's an exaggeration, but it was a very brief amount of time and a lot of paintings. And it wasn't to develop an audience. It, it wasn't, he's doing it because it was in him. My wife is a painter. My wife doesn't put her work online because her paintings are for her. And that is actually what is in a creative person's heart. Now, a content creator is a creation of the creator economy. Content is things you make to be seen. Art is things you make because they are in you. And these current conditions that we're in have made people feel that the path you must take is you must have an audience. That audience has to pay you. You have to like move up a ladder to get sponsored. And that is a notion of success. To me, that is a notion of success according to like pitch decks of late stage creator economy companies that are still trying to go public. And it is a 
investor mentality that is completely divorced from the reality of a creative person. I think for a creative person, it is having the things you feel in your heart and your head appear in the real world as you imagined them. And as you get further in your career, that becomes a question of more and more, what do people think? And did it pay me or not? But getting paid or not, for a lot of people is really quite optional, not because they're privileged, but because they have a job or because it's for them. It is for them. It is not for the algorithm. It is not for a leaderboard. And so that's where my work comes from is that spirit. My friends who are artists, like that is where that work comes from. And of course, art fields are competitive. There's certainly like social hierarchy is very clear. All those things exist, but it's not, I have an idea. I must have an audience. I must make money. That is like a mentality invented in the last eight years that people are just bought into, but it's not true in a deep way. It's true to this time, but it's not true to like making work that comes from the source, capital T, capital S, where all creative work comes from is source that's being channeled through your experience, your voice, your hands. Like that is a separate category of thing. And so, you know, when I see like, oh, there's more creators than ever, to me, that's more people have learned the pattern of what it means to perform and to win according to a status game that has been increasingly normalized. But that is something separate to me than I think like from the creation of art and not mean, I mean, I'm a former music critic, so of course I'm going to be snobby, but I don't mean that in a snobby way, but I think that the attitudes are really quite different. And I think a lot of the challenge that artists and creative people feel about this moment is they feel compelled to compete with people who are more naturally content creators than they are artists. And the nature of our information economy is that a content creator does better than an artist because they're playing the game that is actually the game. And an artist is making work and then they're having to half-heartedly play a game to just exist and to maintain a certain social level. And so, yeah, I would love for that to be different. I would love for that to evolve. There's parts of what certainly meta label is speaking to aspects of that, but probably not at the deepest levels. But this notion of what is a creative person's hierarchy of needs is something I've been thinking about this week that I want to try to write something about because I think that there is a VC backed mentality that we're assuming is true and it's not true. It is a choice. It is a market condition. And People can follow that. There's nothing wrong with following that, but there's something different than that that is just as valid. I think I agree to a certain extent, but I think if your goal as an artist is to create art full-time, a lot of the creatives I know have just like nine to five corporate jobs that are well-paying. And the result of that is they're kind of burnt out by the end of the day. A lot of corporate jobs don't necessarily fuel your creativity and they kind of suck out all of your creativity which isn't conducive to moonlighting as a creative because by then you're just drained and all the creativity has been sucked out of you. Or there are people who are bartending at night, they're driving Uber during the day, they're working all of these odd jobs and then just trying to squeeze in creative time whenever they can. I would say that for a lot of the artists and creatives that I know, their dream would be to be able to create art full time. To make that dream a reality though, you have to think about things from an investor perspective and you have to think about how can you monetize your works, right? If you're a painter and you sit at home and paint all day and that inspires you and brings you great joy, that's great. But if you can't pay the bills and you can't put a roof over your head and food on the table, then how are you to paint? Again, I don't disagree with that. I think for most artists throughout history, you do different things. You know, like many bands, yeah, you have day jobs and you practice at night and you're hoping to get somewhere over time, but there's no guarantee. And I think even for someone today who is a full-time content creator, I think they're working all day. I don't think that they're making art all day. You know, I, I think like yeah. feeding your audience, like if I talk to those people, yeah, they say, I wish I could just make art and not do all this other shit. So it's, it's, you know, it's like there's labor every which way. And it's not to say that the person who spends all day examining different lenses they're going to shoot their movie on and what film stock they're going to use, that that person is more legit or anything like that. I don't, I don't think that. But I think that 
Art comes from making work for yourself, making something that's in you that you can't control. It doesn't matter if someone sees it, it's going to happen. And maybe I'm speaking very specifically to what I say most enjoy or the people in my life and how they make work, who they are. But that to me is a truth I keep seeing and I feel. And it's the things that you can't help to do that are end up being really powerful. You know, it's like, I wish I could turn this off. I wish I could just like trad life, but I can't. I don't have that choice. And that's true for a lot of people, right? And so I'm thinking about that person and, and I'm maybe transposing my own experience of having those feelings and then feeling like to do that, I must play a game that feels fundamentally alienating to who I am in the same way the traditional job can. There's just like different slices of depending on our temperaments and our sensitivities that feel better or worse than others. But I just think this notion that to create is to be seen, to create is to monetize, not true. Not true. Those are explicit choices that are market-based choices based on the platforms that surround us. And I don't know what me saying that does in any way, but I feel like I just want to create that space to say, this is not some automatic truth that we're following through here. This is a fucking system design that we're following that it's good to wake up to and not just assume I had an idea. I must have an audience. Not true. Not true. So now I'm kind of thinking when we see all this discourse about the creator economy online and stuff, I feel like people are more talking about the content creator bucket and not the artist bucket. Well, they are, but it, it, the content creator thing got created as like a second wave of artists. The first people to be called creators in this world were like people making YouTube videos and Kickstarter. Kickstarter was one of the very first mm -hmm. platforms in that space. And people on Kickstarter were musicians, poets, writers who lacked a label or an institutional backer that would put out their work. And at that point, it was impossible to put out work to self-release work without those things. And so we created a channel by which those people could be directly supported by the public instead of waiting for a green light from some nonprofit board or some CEO to say it's okay. And so that just revealed the power of a creative person just speaking directly to their audience through the internet. And then there came a rise of people that just could create audiences on the internet. And that became the YouTuber generation, that became a podcaster generation. And the term creator economy was made maybe five or six years after that by Andreessen Horowitz. And that was them talking up their own investments. It was them hyping Patreon and saying, this is not just a one company, this is a whole economy. But the key word to creator economy is economy. It's about monetizing labor. It is not about creativity. It is about monetization of a class of behavior. And it's just about seeing the power of the internet and what the internet lets you know, connecting nodes of a network to each other and what all can happen with those connections and relationships and clearly has been a very significant development that has had wide impact across society to where people can be a YouTuber as a job and to great success and huge influence. And I have lots of respect for that. The Metal Label Project is about like for me, uh, me personally, I was fully in that world of generating as much content as possible and running a community, you know, hosting a podcast, doing all the things. And even as I was succeeding in what I set out to do, I felt increasingly unhappy. And I came to recognize that unhappiness is being loneliness. And it was, it was a loneliness of being the star, being the center, just feeling I was kind of alone with all this work. And what I realized I longed for was just peers. I want to be among a group of people who sometimes have better ideas than me and who I can help them and they can help me. And I wish I had that rather than just me feeling like everything I put out, if it doesn't get more likes or listeners than the last one, I feel kind of shitty about myself. Mm -hmm. And how do I break that? And that led me to think about the indie record label model and these structures where groups of people who saw the world the same way agreed to release work together. 
and agreed to share their audiences with each other and to share money with each other. And it became apparent to me that there wasn't an easy avenue for a creative person to do that with their peers. Like instead of us being frenemies, because we both make Web3 podcasts, and every time you have a better guest than me, I feel annoyed <laughs> and vice versa. How can we go from that to instead saying, you know what, we're both interested in championing a similar idea. How could we help each other? What if we're both releasing work as a part of the same group? And every time I do a pod, I promote your pod. And every time you do one, you promote me. And we do projects together sometimes. And we create a little shared pool of money we can use to help up and coming people who are starting podcasts in the same universe. And yeah, what is a framework that makes that happen? And to me, the concept and form of the label felt like the right spirit to not say we have to give up our inner individual identities but more, we can combine our individual identities into something that's greater than us. And so we can both be ourselves as our solo voices and the things people come and love about us. But at the same time, we both get to put more emphasis on this ideal that's behind our work. And we get to do things that are more about that at the same time. So that became, for me, a personal aha of like, oh, maybe this is what I'm looking for. And that was two years ago and still exploring those ideas now. But I think that the power of the creator economy is it revealed what we can do with our audiences, the ability to create an audience, how an audience can be turned into resources. I think some of the downsides of that are is it put us in competition with each other for those resources and for those audiences and made people who would be friends and collaborators, instead they're frenemies and rivals. And so my belief is that the label structure is a way to allow us to not face off against each other, but to look out in the world side by side with the same spirit and to hold hands going out into the world. And yeah, I, I, I believe that people want that. I believe that's going to happen. And to me, it just makes sense. It's an evolutionary step of how do we build on what works here, but try to speak to the things about it that seem harder than they have to be. As you were talking about release clubs, it reminded me of, I can't remember if this was an article you wrote or a tweet, but something to the effect of how release clubs is really a better framing and a better way to think about these groups that we're talking about rather than, uh, obviously you've expressed the creator economy terminology isn't necessarily your favorite. But also I think you compared the release club idea or the meta label idea to something like a collective that everybody right. is familiar with from the traditional world. And can you kind of just ex explain what's the difference in yeah. your minds between a release club and a collective and why you like release club better? Yeah, I think a collective, collective is kind of the frame, the modality that we're most familiar with. The challenge with the collective is that it assumes you're all speaking in one voice. It's a removal in many ways of individual identity. And our individual identities, especially as creative people, is incredibly important. I mean, it's our voice. And some of us have voices that are better at harmonizing than we are at soloing, but it's still our voice. And some people are down to be part of a collective. And yes, let me subsume my voice into this larger thing. And this is what I want. I think for many more people, that's a pretty scary thought. What am I signing up for? And I don't know about that and feel a little suspicious and anxious. I, I personally kind of feel that way. Sounds a bit and cultish. Yeah, yeah. And But instead, like a label or a relief club, there the concept is, well, we're all a part of this bigger thing, but it's more like each of us will release something in this shared name. And maybe the shared name is that we're all from New York or that we all care about Web3 or we're all photographers but I am speaking as Yancey Strickler as part of this group who releases work as part of this group. And so I'm not giving up my individual voice. I'm not losing any of that, but I'm simply adding a layer of context and meaning that says I'm a part of something. And these other people, there's something we share in common, but it's not asking someone to give up their individual identity, which I, I think is just tough. You know, some people are that they're very hungry for that. I think more people are anxious about that. And to me, the ideal form is one that allows you to be an individual, but also gives you a path to be a part of something bigger than you. And it's that kind of duality, that balance that I think is really ideal. And in the release club made label model, that's what I think it unlocks. It's not saying you have to give up who you are. It's saying you get to gain in who you are. 
I love that framing. I've seen some of the meta label projects and it kind of looks like a zine where there's a topic for it and you maybe have 10 different authors that contributed their own thoughts to it. As you were talking about even forming a podcast release club, for example, I'm wondering if the way that would work is that we would, similarly to the zine, maybe we pick a topic and myself and maybe some other Web3 podcasters will interview guests, bring on our favorite guests on those topics, we'll speak on those topics from our perspective. Maybe it's just creator economy. And I think you have a really unique perspective to that compared to other people. And we all compile it into like an album of 10 different podcast episodes that address the creator economy from different angles. Is that sort of the model. I like that. Uh, <laughs> I like I like that idea. Let's let's shift that. Yeah, well so yeah, I think that is absolutely a valid way to do it. So, you know, we're continuing to refine and simplify our language and ideas. I think it was a Benjamin Franklin quote that was like, sorry for the long letter. If I'd had more time, I would have written a shorter <laughs> one. In in the fall, we're releasing a platform where a group of people can start a label. Our phrase is going to be start a label, not start a meta label. To start a label, you'll first say what your group is about. You'll give yourselves a name. You'll choose which category of label you are. Are you a podcasting label? Are you a YouTuber label? Are you a philosopher label, a creator solidarity label? Whatever you want to choose. There will be a category of a meta label, which we mean is you release work across all mediums, like mediums don't really apply to you. Next, you'll list who are your other collaborators in this they'll get sent invites to join and then immediately you will have a page where you can begin to publish releases and a release can be a event a blog post a podcast a video something a physical work for sale and those releases can come by just one of you can come by all of you any configuration of you that you wish everything you drop you can sell you can sell it via Stripe and just traditional e-com, or you could sell it on-chain as an on-chain record, which is like a bundle we've created that sits inside of an NFT. The defaults of the platform are going to be that for anything you drop, 70% of the money gets split between the artists, creators behind that release, and 30% goes back to the group's shared treasury, which becomes money that you as a group can use to give an advance to one of you for their next project or to maybe finance someone else's work. But the idea here is to allow you to keep publishing work so that you individually benefit. And every time you publish something, it gets paid back to the group and becomes money that you can invest in future projects you're making together. So in that world, you could be like a podcast network, kind of like what channel.xyz is of new models, interdependence, and Josh Citarella. Like they have three streams, you subscribe and you get all three. Or it could be, and I know they've done this, but you could do a special series of we're going to do a deep dive, a little six app mini series on a topic. We're each going to do a different episode. We're going to release it as a small collection. And if someone chooses to pay for that subscription, like that money would instantly be split between all of you. And so it allows for you individually, just like here's the Web3 podcast network. This is my podcast. Nothing about that changes. You're just a part of this network. Or it could be we're doing a special episode us together, or we're turning our best quotes from all of our episodes into a zine that we'll make collectible that you can purchase, like total free form. And the idea is that each of these labels has something that you share in common, whether it's that you use to express your work or the topic or where you come from. And everything you put out is going to reinforce what it is that you have in common, but there's no boundaries or limits to where you might go with that. So this will open up in the fall. And yeah, we're really excited about it, but it, it's not a platform built on crypto rails. It's a platform that has on-chain goods as a sales channel that we think is very exciting. But if someone doesn't want to touch that, no issue. You don't have to use a wallet to sign in. It is just meant for creative people to find themselves as members of larger groups. And that we think is the important transition. It's an emotional and a creative transition of just not feeling so alone, not feeling so competitive with each other. And we're trusting and believing in what the good things that come after that. Video powers the internet, but building with the most engaging form of media shouldn't be complicated or expensive. 
LivePeer's suite of developer tools powered by the LivePeer network make it easy to build performance video experiences affordably, at scale, and with no vendor lock-in. Designed to give developers the freedom to innovate, creators autonomy from platforms, and viewers a choice in their experience. Visit LivePeer.org to get started today. You can work for yourself without doing it by yourself. As a freelancer or independent worker, you're constantly engaging your network and updating your professional profile, but the tools we use to do this haven't evolved in the last 20 years. Quest makes it easier than ever to gather support for a new idea, broadcast updates to your network, and showcase your best work on your profile. It's one link for who you are and what you do. Sign up at rehash.quest.com to follow along with our quest so you never miss an episode or create your own quest today. Have you ever wanted to buy an NFT with a group of friends, crowdfund a project, or start a collective and found yourself stitching together tools manually to help you make your dreams a reality? I certainly have, and that's why I'm excited to tell you about Lore, the Web3 co-ownership platform. Lore lets you seamlessly spin up a shared wallet, pool resources, and coordinate group activity all in one unified experience. Connect to dApps and make any transaction multiplayer. What you can do together is endless. Go to lore.xyz rehash and start a collective today. This feels a little inappropriate to ask given the first part of our conversation today, but I can't, I can't wait for this. Yes. You can probably anticipate it at this point. How does MetaLabel yeah. make money? Yeah. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> so yeah, we, we have a service fee, 10% of a transaction we charge as a service fee. That's charged to the collector, the buyer or the creator? The creator. Okay. There's also a physical component to the MetaLabel zines. Seen them on the streets yeah. of New York. I'm wondering how does that fit into to the whole strategy? Well, our strategy is to be a label and is to be the thing. And the point of our label is to show other people how to be the thing. And so it is a meta label. It's very, very literal and fractal in that way, and almost annoyingly so. But we just have fun. I found that there's a way of doing this work where you're very strategic and you do your competitive analysis and you like mid twit sweat out all these things and my experience is that leads to uncertainty and unclear decision making i think on the other side of that slider is just having fun and just doing something because it feels right and we have an office that's in the lower east side of new york and we love the city. We love our neighbors, like so many great creative projects and people in our neighborhood that we've gotten to know. And yeah, we wanted to make something that was for them. We wanted to make something that was for our neighborhood. And so we bought an old newspaper box off of Etsy, put it out on the street. And each day for over a month, just put 50 zines in it each morning for free. And then generally they'd be gone by the end of the day. The zine is all about how we as creative people we want to feel less alone it's all the things we've been talking about just the feeling the emotions of it and trying to say a positive affirmation this is what we want it was called new creative era and at the end there's just a call to action of like go to this url and you're invited to co-sign the zine to add your name and email and then you can get invited to events and it's like 1100 people have co-signed that so wow. far and honestly it's just having fun and just being truthful the zine was written and designed in about just a few hours. It was a spur of the moment, unplanned thing. And we just kept plus oneing on our ideas and that just came together and came out. And so it was like a very true reflection of what the project is. And so we've had eight releases that are of varying forms, two of them being zines, some of them being software. And you know, we have three more releases coming up in the next couple of months that are all different creative expressions that are centering this emotional journey and making it apparent that other people can follow the same path. And for us, release number 10 in our catalog will be this metalabel.com platform where other people can adopt these same structures. But like there will be a release 11, a release 12. We're going to keep on releasing things as we see fit. And my feeling is as long as we're having fun and being truthful to our own emotional journey, those are just going to keep being great. We're going to love making them. They're going to resonate with people. And yeah, it's just who we are. And you just be the thing, make the thing and be the thing. And my instinct is that if you could just stay in that pocket, in that zone, it's going to play, it's going to go okay.
the second you get into like, but what about, and we have to anticipate this and shortcut that. And that's when you end up speaking to nobody. You're speaking to your fears and fears aren't sexy. If you meet someone and they're super anxious about everything and they're apologetic about everything, you're like, I'm not really interested in talking to this person. But if someone's like, even if it's admitting that they're fucked up, but if they're just like, (laughs) yeah, here's what it is. You're like, I like you. (laughs) What's going on? You're attractive. You know, so just stay in our truth. Even if that truth is a little bit pain or a little bit cringe, just be true and it'll work out. Absolutely. Yeah. So you you guys are 10 drops in. What have been some of your biggest learnings? You've shared so many learnings, but maybe to summarize that or maybe introduce any new learnings, what have been your biggest learnings from the first 10 drops? Quality drops too. Oh, I didn't even touch on that. Yeah, that was a series. So I think the biggest lesson has been, and this was not intentional, but many of our releases have been first, we make something just because we want it. Like let's publish our manifesto. Okay. Well, we need some sort of website to do that. What, how do we do that? Or We're going to make a zine, but we want to find an interesting way to sell it. Let's invent a way to sell it on chain as well as sell it physically. How do we do that? And as we've done those things for ourselves, first, just for us, they've worked. And we've gotten a lot of messages from people being like, yo, that was cool. Can I do that? How can I do that? And so there's been this constant pattern of what I call internally progressive productization where we just make something and then we realize, oh, yeah, this will work for other people too. Let's do that. So for a number of our releases, step two is let's make what we did available to other people. And so this quality drop series was an example of this. Of We made a way to release this after the creator economy zine where we publish it simultaneously on chain and through traditional media. It was great, sold out in a few hours and big resonance from that release. And Gitcoin had reached out saying they loved that and could they use something like that? And so we used that to reissue the white paper written by Vitalik Buterin about quadratic funding. And we ended up doing something similar with 10 groups, six of whom sold work both through on-chain forms as well as traditional forms simultaneously. And together, those 10 drops sold more than 10,000 records, had a million dollars in revenue. And that money got paid out to like more than 150 people in groups using the system we've made. And really that was just taking our experience and allowing other people to become a part of it. And so, yeah, I think the main lesson is just where I see and where myself have gotten into trouble is too much meta strategy versus just speaking what's in your heart and finding a way to articulate it. And it's not easy to speak from your heart. It's a lot of like shedding you have to do. There's a lot of drafts to get to what you really think. Like kind of the beauty of a crisis is that a crisis forces you to get to the truth faster than you would otherwise. If you and your significant other are having a big fight, your deflective things aren't going to work. It's only when you get to, maybe it's because I'm afraid of this, that there's like, oh shit, that's what hasn't been said that we now get to. And so getting to that as a creative person is very not easy, but that is where all good things lie. And So as a group, we just sort of, in our own internal dynamic, keep finding out how to get in that spot and how to get out of our way. And I find it easier to do that in a group dynamic than on my own, honestly. Like on my own, when I publish work, I'm still super anxious, sweating it, afraid as soon as I hit send, everyone's going to unsub and hate me. That fear has not diminished. When I release things with a group of us, I just get to feel proud because I'm like, well, I have that little bit, but... Ilya did this. This was Austin's idea. That was all Lauren. They're so smart. You're just like, this is cool. You just get to feel proud. And you know that when it goes out, it's not just you sharing it, but it's like all six of you, you know, and it's just the emotional and creative outcome is very different. And that's the truth that I can't unsee about this experience. And that's the truth that makes me think that we're onto something that's real. And that this project is, it's not strategically smart, it's truthfully smart, or it's just truthful. It's just truthful because we feel it. I can see it. And the challenge it will be if it proves to be successful to stay true to that. Uh, the challenge would be if it proves to not be as successful as we want it to be, to stay true to that. Mm-hmm. That remains the challenge. And as it is for all creative people, that's why first albums are easier than second albums. First album, you work really hard to speak as clearly as you can. The second one, it's not easy to get back to that place again. So that's the battle. That's why earlier I go on these 
rants about the importance of doing things for yourself because that's about being closer to your truth and less about speaking to your fears or speaking to your wants or speaking to what you think other people want. You know, to be an artist is to do what you want rather than what they want. That's an artist. And that's a fight. That's a fight that, that really never stops. Yeah, never stops. It's, it's funny how you were just talking about how it's much harder than it sounds to do things from the heart because a lot of times I think we just don't even know what is coming from the heart. And I was just having a conversation with Billy Ludke from Intuition about this a couple episodes ago on Rehash. We were talking about whether technology has made human intuition worse. It's made us less intuitive people because we've become a lot less observant of our surroundings when we constantly have our eyes glued to our phone or our screens. And I think maybe, and this is, I promise we're gonna wrap up soon and not go down another rabbit hole, but it reminded me of this article you're working on about the post-individual. And I, I wonder if it's not just that technology has perhaps made us less intuitive and less aware and connected to what our heart is telling us, but that this culture of individualism has contributed to that as well. Because like you were saying, sometimes when you work on projects by yourself, you can second guess, you can become anxious and fearful and maybe not tr even trust your intuition or trust that this is you speaking from the heart and this is true to you and therefore good to a certain extent. But when you're in a group of people and you release something as a group, that makes you feel a lot more confident and a lot less fearful and anxious because you have the backing of that group. And I, I wonder if maybe it's like this individualistic society and culture that has also made us more detached from our intuition and how we're feeling. I think that's an in interesting theory for sure. To save us from the rabbit hole, I'll just share one thought, which is the psychologist Carl Jung has a concept he wrote a lot about called individuation. And individuation is something distinct from individualism. And individuation is how a person learns their distinct value by being a member of a group. So if we're in a family, a way that I might learn my individuation is that I am, uh, I'm the funny one in the family. And it's not necessarily that I am a comedian or that I'm the funniest person, but within the context of our group, that is more my character. You know, my sister is more the brave, the braver one. And that this is a way that, in a quite healthy way, that people learn to identify more of their individual traits and distinguish themselves from group dynamics, but not in a way that like, well, I'm leaving and I'll see you once a year at Christmas. So I, I really like that idea of individuation as like a slight tweak, but I think a meaningful one of distinguishing different forms of individualism. Individualism is not simply, I am free to be whoever I want and I don't have to be with you anymore if I don't want to. There are different strands of that. And the, the article you mentioned that'll be coming out in September, the post-individuals exploring how the internet has changed that and who we are as a result of that. And I mentioned before feeling like the little thing bobbing on the surface of a wave of a gigantic ocean. And that's kind of how I think we all are with the degree of social change happening around us, that we are in the midst of a, a huge transition that it's very hard to get our fingers on. But as I've looked at things like the Dow summer of 12 months when people believed in Dow's, my feeling there was like Dow's are the smoke, not the fire. The fire is the internet is becoming a real society. You know, Dow's are just a blip along that longer journey. Yeah, love that. All right, Yancy, we end every episode with a segment called Explain Your Tweet, which now that it's not called Twitter, I wonder, what do they call it now? I believe Z is the word. Oh, no, I can't do I that. I'm sorry, I, wanna, I can't I do it. I want to delete myself. I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm sticking with Explain Your Tweet until the end of time. But this is where I go through your tweets and I find something interesting. It could be a spicy take. It could be just something ambiguous and give you a chance to explain it. So... The tweet that I have for you today is from September 26, 2022, so almost a year ago. And I wouldn't say this is spicy. I'm just not really sure what to make of it. It kind of just sounds like a statement and I'm wondering like, what's the context for you writing this? So you said, the default life path for most men is to find themselves alone late in life. This is the natural end state of the careerist, traditionally masculine path. 
Yeah, this is one I still think about. I wasn't sure what tweet you're going to share, but yes, I think about that <laughs> constantly. Honestly, I look at the men I know in my life, my father, my stepfather, the fathers of my friends, and it's the default to end up being just like an older man who's just extremely isolated. Because I think the default life path for a man is a careerist one, which involves like making friends on the golf course through business deals and just a lot of professionally oriented relationships. But the truth is that most of those end the second it be no longer becomes useful. And so instead you find yourself extremely unattached from other people. My old therapist, who's a man in his eighties, told me that in their fifties, most men begin to realize the limits of their careerist path. And they begin to wish for stronger relationships and they turn to their wives if they're still married at that point in time. And around that same point in time, women really get kind of sick and are no longer feeling as patient for waiting for their husbands to give a shit about anything other than work. And that at that moment, they actually will go and start a business or create more of their own separate lives because it just, what's the use? Like they have to take advantage of their life. So he says there's this moment where these ships crossing and they just miss each other. And all these couples getting divorced, he just sees it over and over again. But yeah, I think that everything about the male expectations of success is about individually winning and distinguishing yourself and that every incentive is built around that. But the outcome of that is a life that's alone in the end. And I think about the feeling behind that tweet constantly because it's a thing that I consciously consider for myself that I do not want to end up there. And so for me, that's created very specific things like calling old friends with frequency just to talk and just I've made a conscious decision to invest my energy in things that I think are real and are separate from my competitive market value. And yeah, I think that women end up in a much better place later in life than men do. I did a, a project called the Bento Society for many years, which is teaching people to see their self-interest through multiple dimensions, not just now me, but now me, future me, now us, future us. And I led hundreds of those sessions. And what I walked away observing was that for almost all men, when they would go through this exercise, it blew their minds that there was something more than now me. There was just this assumption that like, now me's it. It's what makes sense. You know, I get up, I go to work, I do the thing, whatever. It makes sense. It's going to work, you know? Whereas women, when women would see these four dimensions, they would be like, oh, yeah, this is how my mind works always. Like, I, it helps. Thanks for organizing this. But yeah, I'm always thinking about these things. And I think there's evolutionary reasons for that. But I think it's a deficiency for men and that you pay the price later in life. And I don't want to end up like that. A lot of people are quite upset for me saying that, like, you know, annoyed, angry, whatever. But like, I think that's because they could feel that there's truth there. And this is where you got to think for yourself. Same with all these other things. Think for yourself. Don't just assume winning according to what winning means right now is actually winning. It's most likely not. It's a system designed not for you to win, but for you to play the game. And the solution to all these is to know yourself, to choose your game, to choose what games you're going to play and not going to play, to choose who to play them with. That is actually winning. And that's much harder. Like I'm 44 years old and I'm starting to figure that out. Starting, <laughs> you know, starting barely. And it's hard work and it's painful and it's embarrassing, but it's, that's the real shit. That is my, that is the truth I keep learning. Well, I think it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful that you are thinking about these things. I'm sure your 80-year-old therapist that told you that told plenty of other people that as well, and they probably just went in one ear and out the other, and you really actually took something from that. So I, th I think it's really wonderful. I don't think any of it is embarrassing at all. I don't think any human has ever done learning and growing, even learning about themselves. I don't even know if most people know who they are, even until death sometimes. So 
Mm. I think what you're doing is great. I think maybe the Twitter haters just didn't understand the context of where that was coming from. Because I also read it without any context. And having had those experiences that you had was like, I just don't know what he's trying to say or yeah. where he's going with it. So that's probably just where all the Twitter hate came from. Sure. Because people were just sure. confused about it. But thank you, Yancy. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know we're already well over time. And I appreciate you taking the extra time as well. I have enjoyed this conversation so much and I can't wait for everybody to read your post-individualism article when it comes out in the fall. I think it's really good, really thought-provoking stuff, all of your articles, really. Before you go, tell people where they can find your articles, your book, follow you and, and your your spicy tweets, and also get involved with Meta Label, especially when the 10th drop launches in the fall. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for like going so deep with these questions and being so on point and being present in a real way. Like I, I noticed that I feel it. So, you know, gratitude. I, I see you in that. And yeah, I'm on the internet at whystrickler.com. First initial, last name, whystrickler on Twitter and metalabel.com, M-E-T-A-L-A-B-E-L.com. And yeah, our world will be coming more online in the fall you can apply to be a part of it and join and i think it's gonna if any of these things spoke to you the feelings they spoke to you i think that this is going to be a space that will support you so fingers crossed amazing thank you so much yancy thank you everybody for tuning in and we'll be back again next thursday with another episode of rehash thank you for tuning in to this episode of rehash rehash is hosted produced and edited by me diana chen and sponsored by lens live peer quests and lore Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at RehashWeb3 or on Lens at Rehash.Lens. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.